So if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be reading from uh, today. As I look back on last week when we taught through Mark, we handled a lot of scripture last week. If you were here uh, for that one or you were able to catch that and listen to it, I went back and counted and we actually went through 122 verses of scripture last week which okay <laughs> today we're going for 123 you know like how are we <laughs> no we're not we're not going to do that many this week but i was thinking back I, I told my family at lunch that day I was like, man, I went back and counted and I said, I've been preaching the Bible in some form or fashion just about every week since I was 15 years old. Uh, whether I was teaching a Sunday school class, teaching in youth, all different ways. Um, I've done a lot of Bible teaching um, in my lifetime. I don't think I've ever at one setting gone through that many scriptures in a, in a lesson or a sermon. And I was like, man, that was, that was a lot of text. But yet I felt at the same time that we spent a good amount of time with the text as well. We just didn't breeze over it. But there was a lot more to the text that we went through last week. So I hope that you're involved in one of our Mark study groups so that you can actually take that deeper or that you're utilizing our study guides that we put out each and every week so you can actually take that text, break it down, think about it, get it in your heart and let the Holy Spirit use that to help you learn more about God and how we can better serve him. So uh, what, uh, what just a great time we've had going through Mark. So we're going to start off in chapter 11 today and let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went out and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now here we're celebrating Palm Sunday, right? That's what today is traditionally known as. It's this day that we can read about here in Mark 11. And that's what we're celebrating today as Jesus rides through the crowd on this young donkey. Now, you need to understand something about the culture at that time. There were different animals that would signify different things as a king would ride through town. If a king were riding through town on a horse, that would communicate to the people as he was riding through that we're at war. Like this is a time of war and that king riding through on the horse, people would be preparing and understanding that we're in battle. But if a king were to ride through town in a parade or something like that, where people are celebrating and shouting as was this day on a donkey, that would be communicating to them 
actually that this is a time of peace. Now, this would be very interesting if you are a person who is a national Jewish person seeing Jesus ride through on this young donkey because you're living under Roman occupation. The Romans have been occupying all of the seats of authority and government, and you're paying taxes to Rome. You're seeing Roman soldiers everywhere in your town, and you're understanding that although you're kind of free, you're really not free because you're living under this Roman state and this Roman oppression. And you're hoping that this king who's coming is actually going to establish his kingdom, meaning in their minds, an earthly kingdom, thus overthrowing the Roman government. And he comes in riding on a donkey. And you can see the people's expectation of Jesus, of their messianic king, because they're waving around palm branches and they're laying down their cloaks. Now, We've seen this practice before in the scriptures. We've seen in 2 King when um, Jehu is uh, going through the crowds of people, they were laying their coats before him to prepare a path and, and they're celebrating and they're, they're, they're cheering. And we can see that this is not a, a new custom that they were doing. They're excited. Even if you read in the historical book of the Maccabees, in First Maccabee, Maccabees 13, you see that the palm branches were being waved as people were parading through the streets as a sign of military victory. Even to this day, um, Israel uses the sign of the palm branch as a sign of military victory. And so they're expecting Jesus to come and establish his kingdom through overthrowing the Roman government. We've seen this all throughout. A lot of the things the disciples have said and other people have said, and people are setting their expectations on Jesus to come and save them. And they're shouting out, Hosanna, and which is them saying, save us, salvation is here, and they're going to be saved. But from what? Do they truly understand what this king has come to save them from? In their minds, you can tell by the posture of their waving the palm branches, you can tell by the way that they're celebrating. Their expectation is set around a military, a Jewish nationalistic military victory. And the same crowd that is shouting out, Hosanna, salvation is here, save us, save us now. That crowd just a few days later is going to be shouting in response to the choice between Barabbas, the murderer, and Jesus. They're gonna be shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. My question is this to us today, are we serving God or do we expect him to serve us? A lot of us follow God because we have in our mindset what he's supposed to do for us. We have thoughts of what he should do for us and we place our expectation must like these people set their expectations on Jesus of what they thought he had come to do. And we can look at him often the very same way. And we'll think, well, I'll follow you, God, as long as you meet my criteria, as long as you do what I think you should do. And my understanding of what you should do often comes down to my definition of God truly being good. So what do we do when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? Is he still good? You see, in Christian circles, we have little sayings, right? And we all know these sayings. And I want you to help me out with this one. This one goes a little something like this. It says, God is good all and now that statement is true. And you were all very cute saying it together. I appreciate that. 
That's a true statement. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But here's the problem with that statement. Oftentimes, good can be relative to the individual based on how we define good. And so, yes, God is good according to his definition and his standard of good all the time. He's not always good according to our standard and our definition of good because each one of us have a different definition of good, which is why you and I can go watch the same movie and disagree with whether or not it's good. We can go eat at the same restaurant and disagree with whether or not we think it's good. Because I may tell you, oh, have you been to such and such restaurant? Oh, it's so good. And you're like, ugh, I would never go in that place, right? But yet I would say it's good. Even things like rain can be good to the farmer, but yet rain may not be good to someone who's meticulously planned an event or a family outing and all of a sudden the rain ruins it. The the rain ruins your golf day, right? But for the farmer, he's saying this is good. And to the golfer, he's saying not so good. So good can be relative based off of what we want, based off of our experiences. But here's the difference. When it comes to God, God is good all the time according to God's definition of good, not your definition of good. And we have to trust in God's definition of good. And this is where we get tripped up because we put our definition of good onto God. And we expect him to serve us and meet our expectations. And that's not the way it works. Have you ever read the book of Job before? God is good all the way through the book of Job, but what Job was experiencing was not very good in our opinion, but God never stopped being good. Job went through a lot of tough stuff, a lot of difficult stuff, and God even says to Job, where were you at when the worlds were being created? Were you there? God's asking this question that, of course, we all already know the answer to, but he's getting Job to see how big he is and that he's good whether things are favorable towards him or not. This is the oldest question that people have been asking about God, and this is the oldest trick in the book that Satan has been using since the dawn of humanity to get us to doubt in God. This was actually the first challenge that humanity ever faced that we have recorded is when Satan went into the Garden of Eden as the serpent and he tempted Adam and Eve, the first two people on the planet. And what did he tempt them with? He tempted them by getting them to question whether God was good or not. That's really, if you boil it down, Satan got them to question within their own hearts if God was really good. Because he said, well, you know, God's actually holding back on you because God knows that if you take this fruit, you'll actually become like him, thus planting in their minds and in their hearts the seed of doubt that would get them to say, well, why wouldn't God want us in on this? And so instead of them trusting in God's definition of what good was and what evil was, mankind chose in that moment to define for themselves what good was and what evil was. And they wanted to be their own uh, form of justice exacted in the world. They wanted to have their own values and their own desires. So I want to be able to know good and evil according to my own standards instead of trusting the standard God already set. God said, this is good. All of this is good. This one thing, not good. Stay away from it. And instead, they wanted to make that choice for themselves. And the reason that they wanted to make that choice is because they doubted in that moment the goodness of God. That's what I'm asking us when I'm asking, are we serving God or are we expecting him to serve us? Are we expecting God to meet all of our criteria? Much like the people on that Palm Sunday 
were expecting certain things out of Jesus and they were misunderstanding the purpose and why Jesus had come. Let's go over to Luke chapter 19 for a minute. That's right, a different book of the Bible. <laughs> if you've been hanging around here for the past nine weeks, we've been just hunkered down in Mark, which has been fantastic. But we're going to go jump over to a different book. Aren't you excited? Luke chapter 19. I love it. Love the enthusiasm. Luke chapter 19. Let's read in verse 41. But before we do, just to set the scene, this is the exact same thing that Mark recorded in Mark 11. Mark just doesn't give this part of the story for whatever reason. But Luke does give this additional part of the story. So it's the same point in the story where Jesus has walked through the crowds on the donkey with the, the palm branches and they're all shouting Hosanna. And then it gets to verse 41, which is where we're going to pick up the story in Luke's account. Verse 41 says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." This is very interesting here because Jesus is in a much different state of mind than the people who are celebrating and shouting Hosanna. They're cheering, they're celebrating, he's crying. And what is he crying over? What is causing Jesus to weep while everyone else is cheering the fact that they didn't know the, the time of their visitation, that they were... Once again, like sheep without a shepherd, he's crying over them and he's seeing all of the difficulty that they're actually going to experience and they are misunderstanding who he is and why he has come and they're already celebrating and Jesus is crying over this. So do we choose to follow God only when we think he's good according to our standards and when he meets our criteria or do we really trust and believe that God truly is good all of the time? And all of the time that we experience here on this earth, God is good. We have to replace this idea of our definition of good with submitting to his will and his agenda. And that even means when things are difficult because good in the eyes of God doesn't always mean me getting my way. It doesn't mean my life always having favorable outcomes according to my standards. If you're serving God because you think that's what he's going to get you, you're going to be disappointed. Jesus himself said that people are gonna hate you and it's gonna be because of me. He said, there's gonna be things you're gonna go through, trials, persecutions, he said, and it's gonna be because you're serving me. That's why we must, as Romans 12 says, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's why we must, as the Apostle Paul says over and over again, for us to die to ourselves, as even Jesus said, for us to take up our cross, for us to crucify our flesh daily, for us to truly walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. Because if all I'm looking for is a comfortable, easy road, that's the road that Jesus said is wide and it leads to destruction and many will find it. But the path, the way to life, 
It is straight and it is narrow. And Jesus said there are few that find it because it's easier for us to seek out what makes us feel good. And we walk by feelings and we walk by senses and we walk by emotions and circumstances dictate uh, our faith and our trust in God, but not so of the Christ follower who has sold out to Jesus, the one who has given him everything. So let's keep reading here at Mark 11. Pick it back up in verse 12. On the following day, when they, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Stop right there. Now here, you have to understand the way the fig tree actually works is that you will see that fruit actually begin to produce and then the leaves come after. Very different from what we would normally expect from plants. Normally we would see the leaves in a blossom and then we would see fruit later. The fig plant is a little different. And so when you see that there are leaves there, that's an indication that fruit is produced. And it's even stranger that there was a fig tree that already had leaves on it because as scripture says, it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't time for the fig tree to actually produce. And so Jesus curses this fig tree because it has the appearance of fruitfulness, but yet it has nothing there. There's nothing there to this fig tree and the disciples remembered this moment. Verse 15, and then they came to Jerusalem and he, Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Now you need to understand that the fact that there were animals being bought and sold in the temple was not wrong. This actually happened and there are actually laws around these animals being bought and sold in the temple. What was happening here was not just a normal exchange, but a perversion of worship because people had to buy the animals somewhere to be able to bring to have sacrificed and this was a normal practice. There were other things happening here where they were being charged egregious amounts of money and they were being actually taken advantage of in this situation as well as they were in places in the temple where they weren't supposed to be actually conducting this type of business. So not only were they just using this as an opportunity for personal gain and Jesus exposes what's going on here because this is supposed to be a place dedicated to worship. And so I don't want you to misunderstand the idea of the buying and selling because that was a part of their normal practice. But what was happening was a perversion and a misappropriation of worship. It had an appearance of worship. It had an appearance of something that was actually honoring and glorifying to God. But Jesus rips the cover off of this thing and he exposes it for what it really was. It was just a bunch of thieves who were just trying to line their pockets and make money. And people were there with the wrong heart intent. The very same thing that Jesus just did with this fig tree. It has an appearance of godliness. It has an appearance of fruitfulness. It has an appearance of even worship. 
But Jesus exposes it, overturns the tables, and calls it what it really is and what's actually going on. Verse 20, and they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Like, that's so cool. Something Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And he's still not getting it, right? He's so excited about this dead tree. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received and it will be yours. And, whatever, and, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. And they again came to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What a strange way to answer that question. Isn't that strange? I mean, just look at that. It's, it's very interesting. They wanna know by what authority do you do this? And Jesus said, well, was John's baptism from heaven or man? Hmm, I, I don't, really, don't really get that. And they discussed it with one another, verse 20, 31. If we say from heaven, then he's going to say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And then they're thinking, oh no, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What is Jesus doing? What is he doing in this moment? He's doing the same thing he's been doing since the fig tree. He's exposing the heart of what's really going on. He's showing them, you don't really wanna know the answer to this question. You don't really wanna do this. You're just trying to trick me. You're trying to trap me. And so I'm gonna pose a question to you that's putting you in the exact same situation you're putting me in, where you're wanting to divide and you're wanting to have ground to be able to stand on, to be able to go and accuse me. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus puts them in a situation where either they have to agree with Jesus or look bad in front of all the people. And they're smart enough to catch this and talk about it and go, well, if we answer this way, it's gonna make us look bad and all the people are gonna hate us because they really, really like John and they really believe he was a prophet. But if we answer this way, then we're agreeing with Jesus and we don't want to agree with Jesus. So what do we say? I'll speak up. And they nominated one of the group after they had this discussion. And he goes, Rabbi, we do not know. <laughs> and then Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer your question because I see what you're trying to do. And that's why I answered you in the way that I did. What's Jesus doing here? He's exposing the heart. He's showing what's really going on. And that's what Jesus does because Christ followers are called to do more than simply keep up appearances. Amen, church? So many of us can get in the rhythm of doing certain things as Christ followers that we get really, really good at keeping up appearances. Like we know all the, the words to say and we know, you know, how are you doing, brother? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored and thank you, Jesus, I'm, I'm just blessed. And, and, and we say these things but, and we know how to keep up appearances, but Jesus sees past all of that. You may be able to fool another person by the way that you act, the way that you respond, or the way that you behave, but Jesus sees what's really going on in the heart. And he's looking for fruitfulness. 
He's looking for us to be found fruitful. He's looking for us to be found faithful. And he wants us to be able to trust in him. That's why he tells his disciples, whoever will say to this mountain to be removed and cast into the sea and does it down his heart, but believe that he received, that's, that's what God is going to do. Like he can do this, take away this big, huge mountain if you believe. And he's talking about this idea of why he's come because to you and to me, the biggest mountain that we will ever face is the mountain of sin. It's the biggest mountain that we ever face. It's a mountain that we can't climb in our own strength and we can't overcome. But yet by faith, God will do the impossible and God will help us to be reconciled to himself through faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And Jesus is showing them the power of God and how he can remove the biggest obstacle that you and I will ever face. The thing that seems so daunting, the thing that seems like it's just too difficult for God to overcome. He's saying, no, this is how faith works. He's not actually saying that if you speak to a literal mountain, that mountain will actually move. And no, that's not the scripture that you can go build a doctrine on for God to make you healthy, wealthy, and give you all your dreams and desires. That's not what that's for. It's Jesus communicating to them why he's come. Because we need to ask in his name, according to his will, amen? That's how Jesus taught us to pray. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, amen? And trust that God can do it because that's what faith really is anyways. It's not something that we have in ourselves as much as it is what we have towards our God. It's us saying our God is bigger. Not I can overcome this, but my God can overcome this. It's saying my God can overcome the, the, the effects of sin that it's had on this world and in my life. And that he can overcome anything because with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Christ followers are called to do more than just simply keep up appearances. We're actually to have real faith, faith, mountain moving faith that is anchored in what Jesus has done because folks, it takes mountain moving faith to be able to believe that God can do what he said that he can do and what he has done and we must trust him. You see the fig tree was also a, a symbol of Israel Israel who looked fruitful, but yet its leaves were out of season. It had a form of godliness, but no power. The temple looked like a place of worship, but corruption was happening. The chief priests looked like they had a good question, but Jesus, he exposed their intentions. Let's keep on reading Mark chapter 12 and verse one. And he began to speak to them in parables. Before we read this parable, this one is an interesting parable because it talks about um, a vineyard. And this would have been a story that would have made a lot of sense to them in their day. And so this is Jesus using common things that have happened and things that people are aware of that do happen to illustrate a point. And so you're gonna be able to see his point in it, but as you read it, you may wonder why is Jesus using this particular story? Because Jesus often used parables in this way. And I don't know how many of you um, own vineyards or are planning on you know, digging a wine press today. Maybe that's your afternoon project. Um, you're gonna go dig a wine press. Um, and you may read this going, what does this have to do with me? And you must understand the intent of Christ was to connect with the people of his day. And so when you read those stories, it may not always make sense to us, but understand it would have had great significance and meaning to those people because this was a part of, of life there and they would have understood this scenario. So I just want to give you that caveat before we read this. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants 
and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to him, to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to, to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here you're seeing this scenario play out that is somewhat prophetic imagery of how the different voices have come throughout the years. The different prophetic voices have come. Some were beaten, some were killed, they're rejected, but yet the beloved son has come. And when he comes on the father's behalf to do the father's bidding, they kill him and he's prophesying about himself here. And then he uses the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and that this was the Lord's doing. He's trying to still yet help them understand why he has come. In verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they had perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So these guys are smart enough to realize that they were the bad guys in the story Jesus just told. Like they, they were sharp enough to go, if people put two and two together and we keep pushing the issue, we're gonna be in trouble. And so instead of keeping on and pushing the issue um, or trying to do something else, they realized, hey, we just uh, don't, don't arrest him right now. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Isn't that nice? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So here they are trying to trap him about taxes, trying to see what do we do with this? I mean, this is obviously not a God-fearing government that we're living under. So what do we do? We wanna, we wanna operate outside of the authority of this government. And we want you to give everybody permission to basically revolt against the government because the government is not a God-fearing government. So what are we gonna do, Jesus? He says, well, he says, Here you here's how you're gonna handle that. You're gonna render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God, you're gonna give him what belongs to him. Verse 18, and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Really, this is the type of stuff you guys are sitting around thinking about? Like they came up with this scenario you know, that this, this lady gets married seven times, all of her husbands died, she never had kids, and they're wanting to know who is going to be married to her in heaven. And they're trying to, again, trap Jesus. Remember, when you read these questions, Jesus, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus by asking these questions. They don't really want to know the answer to this because they're Sadducees. They don't even believe in the resurrection. I mean, these people don't even believe in this, and they're asking him because they're trying to set him up. And it's very interesting because Jesus calls them out. He says this, verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And that's how Jesus answers that one. And one of the scribes comes up and he heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So what was left to do for that man? The only thing left to do would be to believe, to believe in Jesus Christ. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Here as we look at these different stories that we read, we can see the priority of heaven. We can see what really matters as Jesus, we read about him exposing what was really going on in people's hearts how he is calling out 
all those who are trying to deceive and even warns his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's trying to tell them, listen, these guys prefer to look good. These guys prefer to sit in these seats of honor. They don't really want the truth. They don't really want to know who I truly am. And as Jesus' message over and over again has been preparing hearts over and over again, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Believe. So Jesus' message over and over again that he was preaching from town to town and showing people who he was in the scriptures continued to say to repent and believe. And we prepare the way in our hearts for the kingdom of God by prioritizing eternity now. This is our big idea for the day. Preparing the way in our hearts for the kingdom of God means prioritizing eternity now. The people of Jesus' day they missed it. Israel was the vineyard and the people were charged to care for it. They ended up killing God's son, rejecting him. They continually wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to ask him about paying taxes to an ungodly government. They asked about marriage in heaven. How is it going to work even though they didn't even believe in the resurrection? He teaches them to beware of religious leaders who are concerned with appearances and just feeling special. He's trying to prepare the hearts of the people to see and understand who he is and what he has come to do and how they are to respond. And church, I believe that that's what our hearts need to be prepared for as we are preparing the way. It means that we prioritize eternity now. Who understood this? The widow understood this. The widow understood that to live in light of eternity is to not just bring out of my abundance, but to bring everything. And it's still the same today. It's the same call that Jesus called his disciples with. It's the same answer that he gave to the rich young ruler who asked him what he needed to do in order to follow him. And Jesus said to give up everything. It's the same thing that he told other people when they were enthusiastically wanting to follow Jesus. And he told them, if you're gonna follow me, get ready and you need to see the value in me and be willing to forsake everything, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow me. The apostle Paul says to crucify the flesh daily. He says to, for us to uh, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is our reasonable act of worship, our reasonable act of service. And the widow, she gets this. She understands that to truly worship God means to sacrifice. And that's what she understood. It's not convenient. It's not my definition of good. It's not my definition of easy and everything that makes sense to me and what I can, you know, maybe spare a few, uh, you know, dollars or I can spare some time this week or I can spare, you know, to be able to, to, to invest in this way. It's not what can I spare, it's what do I prioritize. It's not what's left over. It's what do I lead with in my heart. It's what do I give of myself, not just what do I give of my pocketbook. It's what do I lay down? What am I willing to say? It's, this is worship to you because I want to give you everything, not just a part of me. This is what Jesus is looking for. This is what this one uh, scribe that talked to Jesus began to understand to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
The widow understood this. And here's a question that I want us to ask ourselves today. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, do we still follow him? Maybe you were expecting Jesus to come and rescue you out of your current difficult situation, but instead Jesus came to overturn your tables. Perhaps Jesus didn't come and do exactly what you had hoped he would do. Maybe even through this message this morning, you were coming to church maybe expecting something and maybe you were disappointed in what you were perhaps expecting because of what God is actually wanting to expose in your heart. Maybe he's wanting to unco uncover true motive in your heart, not to shame you, not to embarrass you, but to help you to do exactly what he's been preaching all along to repent and believe, to see the value in Jesus, to forsake all, to lay it all down, to know what it means to die to yourself, to deny yourself, to take up your cross. Jesus is not trying to embarrass you. He's not trying to come to a place to bring you shame because that's not the motive of Christ, to shame you. He's trying to expose how you've been following God according to your own definition of good and he's trying to expose the things that are actually hindering you from fully trusting God because it's not trusting God on your terms. It's being willing to give him all. Just like the widow, she gave all. And Jesus marveled and brought the disciples over to show them this is what it's gonna take, guys. It's gonna take this as an act of worship, giving everything. He said, this woman gave more than everybody combined. Could you imagine what the disciples thought in that moment? Two, two small coins, two mites, that's what she gave? Like, didn't you see what the last guy dropped off? He like had his camel weighted down with bags. And did you see all the, all the gold, all the treasure he dropped off? Do you see? how heavy that bag looked. Man, I couldn't imagine what that weighed and how much money was in there. Did you see that? And Jesus is like, yeah, this lady gave more than that. Why? What was the difference? The difference was is that it wasn't about appearances for this lady. It was about giving as an act of worship everything that she had trusting that God was gonna meet her needs, trusting that God was gonna provide, trusting that God was good and worthy of her sacrificing everything for. Because that's what God did by setting the tone, by sending his only son, amen? He gave his best, he gave everything. And in response, as the apostle Paul said, by the mercy of God, I beseech you therefore, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. So what does it mean for you to prepare the way of the king for your heart today? What does it mean? Are you waving around the branches thinking Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna fix all of your problems and make your life easier? Or are you saying, no, Jesus, I see value in you and I wanna follow you no matter what the cost. How is he calling you to prepare the way for his return by the way you live today? To live in light of eternity is a concept we don't understand fully because everything that we understand, everything we know has a beginning and has an end, even a lifetime warranty. We don't really even understand that. It really, it all has a beginning and it has an end, right? 
We don't understand this idea fully of eternity, but yet we're called to live in light of it with what understanding we do have. So that means that I'm investing, I'm laying up treasures in heaven. I'm investing in something that I, I don't fully understand, but I'm trusting. That's faith that God is good and I'm putting action behind that. That's faith that God is good, not according to my definition of good, but I'm gonna let God be good on his own terms. And I'm gonna start with scripture and I'm gonna understand how he's calling me to live my life so that I can live it for his glory. That's why at BCC, our very first core value is that scripture is our starting point. We start here because that's how we want God to be defined, not by the culture, not by what we think. This culture wants to define love according to its terms and its own definitions. Love is defined the way God has already defined it. Can I tell you that truth, this, the, our culture wants to define truth according to their terms. Can I tell you truth is already defined the way God has defined it. Forgiveness, we want forgiveness on our terms, our, our way in the culture. Forgiveness is already decided. And God has already set that up. That's why we start there. And we say, God, even when it comes to the definition of good, I don't want to hold on to my own definition and wave my palm branch, but yet I want you to expose my heart and where I'm at. And if repentance is required, then I'm going to repent. Belief is required. Help me to believe. He's calling us to trust and prepare the way by living in light of eternity now, by sacrificing, by giving him everything. Lord, you're worthy. And we come before you today as a church family and we acknowledge that. We humble our hearts before you. And God, help us to define good according to what brings you glory, not what we want. We submit our will, we submit our our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts about you to the truth of your word. And may your scripture define and refine and, and, and overhaul our viewpoints and, and, and overhaul the lenses that we look through so that we can start with scripture, so that we can be people who are preparing the way in our hearts by prioritizing the things that bring you glory. May we live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.